Welcome back to the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Nicholas, this is Kent, and we have the wonderful privilege of being hosted by two of the most amazing people we have met in our prairie adventures, uh, Nancy and John Brenneman. Man, they uh, were not working in prairie or farming, but were working in agriculture, uh, but on the financial side, mm-hmm. consulting side of something. And, um, and then they retired way too young and decided to uh, get into the actual hands-on stuff and have started some of the coolest projects I have heard of since being on a prairie farm. And I've been on a prairie farm for a long time. So, uh, yeah, Nancy, John, thanks for having us today, having us out in this beautiful place. Uh, but one of the things, and they just gave us a tour before we were here, but yeah, it's really hard to nail down, you know, what, what is it that Nancy and John specialize in other than yeah. kind of everything, <laughs> but yeah. this is a farm that is so full of activity, so full of life, so many different species here in one place, you know, almost all native. And, uh, uh, even, you know, the idea of, yeah, there's some of the, the farming that you wouldn't really call it traditional Iowa Midwest farming, you know, corn and bean, there's not that going on here, but the idea of you're raising a crop for, you know, for sale. But uh, there's also a, right behind us and right right next to us, there's this giant log kiln and behind us a mill because uh, they have, well, John has this other business. And, and what exactly, I never caught the name of the milling business. Yeah, so the milling business is Stonehouse Timber. Okay, Stonehouse, Stonehouse Timber. Timber. That's the... Uh, one of the timbers on our property, that was how we always referred it to. It was hmm. the Stonehouse Timber. So we kind of went that with that name. We've never found a stone house on that property, though, ever. And no one we talked to. <laughs> Sounds like fal- false yeah. advertising. <laughs> <laughs> and no one that I we've talked to that has any history here remembers a stone house there. But huh. it's always been known in the area as Stonehouse, the Stonehouse Timber. Huh. So we went with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great name. Yeah, so you got you have the the milling. You have, uh, I mean, you, there's even enough equipment here to really have like a small time logging operation. Uh, but then uh, the farm side of it too, and and really the way you guys have adapted your unique spot. Uh, you think of Iowa, you think of the best soil on the planet, right? But uh, Nancy and John were dealt kind of a hard card when it comes to soil and uh so they're kind of in the composting business right now as well they got this really impressive and uh enviable compost pile it's like a mountain of compost (laughs) they're growing their own soil they're growing soil here and uh they've had to run uh water lines trench it themselves and set up hydrants on their own to get down to some of the farther reaches of their farm to for irrigation and it's really kind of been you pr- you probably wonder when am I farming and when am I building a farm, right? <laughs> well, speaking of of building a farm, that is really what you guys have done, non traditionally. Uh, but why don't you, why don't you guys introduce it a little bit? Tell us a little bit about your project. And I, we didn't give the name on purpose. We figured we'd let you do that. Well, let's see. Um, I guess I'd like to go back to where it started. So we own 41 acres, and Mm -hmm. we're right along the Cedar River. We're up on a windblown 
Sand and Luss Hill. Yep. Um, and I have to credit John. He had the vision as far back as the early 1980s to buy this piece of land from his parents. So we bought the first oh, okay. 20 acres in the, in the mid-80s, just mm-hmm. after we got married. And then I think in the early 90s or later in the 80s, we bought this, the Stonehouse Timber so that sure. we have the 41 acres. And John had always had a vision to come back to this location after we retired. And we were all over the world uh, in our careers. And um, we'd come back, and, and John in particular would work at weed control and removing noxious honey locusts and black mm. locusts. And um, and when we retired, he he had most of the ideas for developing this land. Mm. That's awesome. Now, now, when you guys say you lived all over the place, I think it's important that our listeners hear what you mean by that exactly. Can you list some of the, the unique places you guys have uh, lived? Well, I think uh, our first jaunt was to Ukraine in 1992. And we were uh, we were doing ag development for the uh, state of Iowa and Iowa State University. Sure. And it's right when the Soviet Union broke up. So we took off, packed up our daughter, and she was 13 at the time. Uh, didn't want to go, of course. <laughs> and went to live in rural Ukraine, right? Wow. And in some pretty tough areas, rural areas. 15 hours south of Kiev yeah. by train. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and then we enjoyed it. We really liked it. We were there a year and then went and worked in uh, Russia doing cooperative development for Land O'Lakes and uh, did that for two years. Came back and uh, did some things here in eastern Iowa and then eventually we kind of missed being overseas. So Nancy got into the Foreign Service and we went back to Ukraine. Wow. And then I got in with USAID, and uh, we started going as a tandem, they called it. So we were in Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, uh, Albania, and then ended our career in uh, Juba, South Sudan. Hmm. So I heard on, where did I, I think on a podcast, I think it was Clay Newcomb's podcast. Shout out to that guy, he's got a great podcast. But <laughs> I, I heard, on his that, I think it's more Western Ukraine and some of those other Eastern European countries have uh, soil, are one of the only places in the world where their soil rivals Midwest. Yes. Yeah. Was, so yeah. was it fairly similar in terms of agricultural climate or? Uh, it was much better than here. Wow. Actually, the soil, soil was probably, it's the deepest topsoil I've ever seen. It wow. would probably 10 to 12 feet down wow. in certain spots. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just, just like what's in Illinois and, and like north central Iowa, it's the silty clay loam, the mm-hmm. deep, rich, yeah. um, very productive soils. Mollusols, right? Mm-hmm. The, the big difference is the latitude. They're much further north than us and with a shorter growing season. Mm. And much drier, at least where we were in southern Ukraine. In our area, actually, they had really worked on developing the irrigation system okay, out of the sure. Dnieper River. So there was a big hydro plant near us and huge canals 
of irrigation water. Um, they didn't use center pivot. It was more of flood irrigation okay. in our area and a lot of small grain. And we were there to um, plant um, pioneer seed and stein soybeans, pioneer seed corn and mm-hmm. stein soybean seed to demonstrate uh, American hybrids. And we had a no-till planter and we're oh. demonstrating no-till and uh, use of herbicides. So were you introducing no-till to that area, to that region? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How did they take it? Oh, it was, you have to remember, this was back in 92, and they'd just broken up, so the old collective farm system was still in effect. Uh, What, 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 I'm sorry, uh, what's the collective farm system? So it was like where a farm would be owned by the employees, but the farm had also managed like the town and a lot of the infrastructure and things in that area just wasn't like a private farm. So it was mm. kind of like the community. And then they had uh, a, a sister organization to that was the state farms. So the government actually owned them. So you had private ownership through the employees on a collective farm and the state actually ran the government farms. Wow. But they were, they ran out of resource. And when we were there, they, the government couldn't provide them anything hardly anymore because they just didn't have the economy and the money. Mm-hmm. When, so, by resources, do you mean seed to plant? Yes. Or? Seed and fertilizer. Money, fertilizer yeah. fuel. Keep wow. equipment running. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so then what they ended up doing is when we showed up, they, they looked at us as the next resource. So typically they wanted us to pay for things. And it, like the learning curve wasn't there yet. It was still like... They just needed someone to replace the government, and mm. uh, that was us at the time. Yeah. So mm. we were showing them some new technology and things, and it didn't take off. Like, typically, as people have, like a farmer especially, they like to see the neighbor do it, the neighbor's neighbor, before in five years they kind of then say, okay, maybe I'll try it. But mm. we had a project that lasted a year. Yeah. But now they pretty much... They, I think, divided. They have small farms, but then they also have huge commercial farms. And the technology is as good as ours. I mean, it's the same thing. And uh, but they're, you know, uh, 30,000, 40,000 acre farms typically now. Yeah, we worked with a 35,000 acre collective farm, and there were six or seven hundred people who lived in a village. The landscape in the former Soviet Union is very, very different than the Midwest because there are not farmsteads. Mm. People who worked on the farms lived in villages and then went to work in the fields that surrounded like the, where the, uh, the cattle facilities or the, there was a dairy uh, on our farm and then beef production sure. on the farm that we worked with and then huge fields. So some people have seen the images of like six or eight combines moving across the field from the Soviet Union. Yeah, we saw those, but unfortunately, because of the equipment was old, it had not been well-maintained, the Soviet Union was running out of money years before it broke up, slowly there would be a line of combines that were not working (laughs) as they continued to move like across the wheat fields we kind of know what that's like at hawks and (laughs) (laughs) just part combines yeah Yeah. but in the last you know since since then they have they have really advanced 
you know, wow. in terms of, mm -hmm. especially Ukraine and, and then parts of Russia too. But, what would you credit that to? Uh, I, I think it was because they got away from the government support pretty much. It was yeah. like where the private sector came in and they actually, and it was usually foreign investors that came in and would purchase a farm or provide equipment and things. Well, then the entrepreneurs in Ukraine learned from that again, and then they stepped up. Mm. And so like if uh, you had a one or two acres that was yours because you belonged to a collective farm, an old collective farm, you didn't want to farm it. So sure, you would lease sure. it to somebody else. Well, they mm -hmm. aggregate all that. And then all of a sudden they'd have a commercial entity. Yeah. Well, that's all, that's all fascinating to see how other countries do that, you know, and, and I got a few questions for you on your experience there. Whenever I hear of people leaving and going and living in another country, whether that's somebody who's immigrated to the United States from another country or somebody who's going on a, a long, you know, like you guys did, a kind of a, a little side journey within your career life, you know, is there... Do you feel like you're missing out a lot from what's going on back at quote unquote home when you're out in the field like that, or uh, is it just every day is a new experience? You you don't everything's so you know flying at you so fast as you're learning everything new for the first time that you don't even have time to think about that. I think that we hit a a, a good balance of that. It's that's a great question, Kent, because um, I I think that. I, I, for one, enjoy adventure, and sure. I was an exchange student in high school, and, okay, and yep. you know, going to Ukraine in 92 was, I was really interested in the Soviet Union, and what were the people sure. like, and because um, they were always the enemy of the United States, but yeah. it was the people I was interested in. Hmm. Um, I think we were pretty isolated those three years in the 90s, hmm. um, because... Uh, the internet was not well developed and we didn't have good connection to internet anyway. Sure. Um, when we joined the foreign service, I worked for the U S department of state and John worked then for U S agency for international development. Mm -hmm. We were in the embassy community. So we had, um, good access to information. And at home we had AFN, which was a military, um, media service for sure. television so we could get the news uh, the regular you know abc nbc cbs news and a lot of popular television programs and things like that and yeah. we had diplomatic pouch and could get mail on a very timely basis as opposed to oh, those good. early years in ukraine um, we relied on mail when people came to visit us we hosted um, visiting groups of educators from that were like extension educators and representatives okay. from industry to they conducted um, short courses for agribusiness and farm professionals in Ukraine that was part of our project and they would bring us um, you know Quaker instant oatmeal and fruit roll-ups <laughs> <laughs> all the things you couldn't and, get and right? the mail <laughs> <laughs> very nice very nice now we can nicholas can chop this out of here and can edit this out but you told us a fascinating story about uh uh a hosting that kind of went awry and ended up with uh 
your personal safety being at, at risk and having to be flown back home emergency evacuation style. Could, could you give us, a, a, our listeners, a quick rundown of that adventure or misadventure maybe? <laughs> well, uh, when we were working in Russia, this was, this was 93 to 95, um, there was a, the office of our project was in Moscow, and we were five hours away in a rural, in a town of 15,000. Mm-hmm. And that the office had uh, a couple of vehicles, and we were hosting farmer to farmer, um, farmers and also agribusiness professionals. And we had an agribusiness professional that had finished up in, in our village, in our project, mm-hmm. and went back to Moscow. And um, unfortunately, he and the driver went out drinking, um, and and the driver of the vehicle was was driving on a busy Moscow street oh, no. and rear-ended a car that hit a tram, which is um, very heavy um, rail car, electric sure, yeah, rail car yeah. on the streets of of many cities in in Europe, and. Um, the car that he hit was, and that people were injured in that car. And we mm. learned they were members of the Dagestani mafia. And oh, they, um, uh, actually the driver abandoned the car and, um, and on a weekend and we're not able to get a hold of the manager of our project, um, sure. our company's project, uh, on the weekend. And, <laughs> um, at the time, it was it was licensed to the embassy, to the U.S. embassy. So oh, they no. got the police call about the vehicle, and um, that was kind of unfortunate. But the um, the mafia bribed the police to get a copy of the police report, found out who owned the vehicle, and then issued an extortion threat, and um, said, you know, if you don't pay, I think it was two hundred thousand, by you know ten days from now, we're going to start violent actions against your employees oh man so our project didn't know you know back in the united states didn't know the headquarters didn't know if if they even knew about us you know of course they Mm -hmm. knew about the office in moscow so they did we packed up in about three hours not knowing we were ever going to come back uh headed on the five-hour trip to moscow checked into one of the big hotels under assumed names and waited there until um, some of the, the uh, directors and managers of the international division came out to talk about what we were going to do. And so we went back to the United States and, and camped in a hotel with a 14-year-old for a, a month to six weeks <laughs> while, uh, while so they were working out, uh, you know, the safety, evaluating our safety and we went back, John and I went back, but um, our project was able to um, ha- uh, pay for tuition for our daughter to go to a, a boarding school in okay. Switzerland. So she Perfect. spent um, part of 10th grade um, in the Swiss Alps learning to ski wow. and making friends with a lot of children from all over the world. And uh, some so, Russians too. And some yeah. Russians yeah. too. Yeah. That is yeah. so yeah. wild. Man, that's it's crazy <laughs> that you would work in agriculture consulting and then get threatened by the mafia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. It's <laughs> such a wild yeah. right. Well, and one there. of the interesting things is it is um, it there are a lot of buyers of horticulture products from the village. I went back to this village in in Russia uh, when I worked 
in Ukraine for the State Department. I took some vacation time and flew up, stayed with my Russian tutor for hmm. three or four days. And most of the private farmers that we had worked with in that project, and there were 600 when we were working wow. with them, and there were a handful left. Hmm. All of them had given up. And really? they were raising vegetables and like carrots and cabbages and things like that. And it was kind of ironic. It was a, a lot of uh, people from the Caucasus, um, like the Chechens mm. uh, and the Dagestanis, who were buying the vegetables to sell in the fresh markets in, in Moscow, the and farmers markets. What made them want to give up? They just couldn't sell them or? Just couldn't make a go of it with... Um, I don't know whether raising small grains on, you know, I think they, in that area, they got maybe five acres when the big collective farm mm. split up and a few of them got tractors. Mm. I think everybody got a dairy cow <laughs> okay. and it just, it just didn't, it was not a feasible um, place, yeah. to, um, opportunity to raise a family anymore. Mm. Well, even, I mean, if you're talking about the United States today, if you are going to do corn and soybeans 200 no no 300 no no 500 probably not unless mm. you're really not planning on eating anything except bread uh you really need you know 750 800 minimum to support a family yes. of, you know five six yeah. people yeah and then uh but you guys don't you don't need that you got a lot <laughs> more going on on a lot smaller <laughs> of a place here uh and like i was saying we had the privilege of touring it and it was just so fascinating i mean for one, you have dunes of sand here in the middle of Iowa. You've got, you know, you've got groves of trees. You've got giant mulch and uh, compost piles. It's really incredible. What, uh, what started all of this? And uh, we would love, because uh, the viewers didn't, or the listeners had no idea what's going on here. What, what do you have on the farm, and, and how did that get started? Well, the, uh, so when we first got going, we just, we wanted a place to live. And that's the last piece we've actually put together yet. We haven't built the house yet. <laughs> so we built everything else. And, uh, and uh, you know, Nicholas and Kent, you know, we had them for lunch today. And I said, here, I do, I build live edge tables for people. And we ate on a plastic picnic table. So they <laughs> put you in context of, of you know, where, where yeah. our priorities are sometimes. But anyway, we've got a small apartment that we stay in now off one of our buildings and uh we've actually put you know time into actually developing the farm we've never had a plan though i mean i for all the planning we've done in our business careers this one we just kind of talk and say well what do we think about this and we just kind of do it yeah. so it started with the um the building the shop here that we're in now and we wanted to do something in wood and so we bought a sawmill. It came out of New Zealand. And we got it, and we said, well, yeah. So I started to cut slabs, live-edge slabs for tables and things. And, mm -hmm. well, this is fun, but now we need to dry it. So then we bought a kiln that uh, came out of the, off the East Coast here. And it's a vacuum kiln. It's kind of a unique style, one of the few in Iowa. And then uh, we said, well, what do we do with the ground? And so we probably... What would it have been six, seven years ago? We did the prairie, some of the native. Oh, it's only been like four years. Four years. We did have, we do have yeah. a long-term goal in that we, 
we want a house and we want land that 95 year olds can live on because <laughs> we're going to be there yeah in like 50 and, years yeah. And yeah. 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 yeah don't we wish <laughs> <laughs> so um that was one of the and i i was always been fascinated by native prairie and i you know grew up in illinois and there there weren't many places that that had any any native prairie sure, and sure. you know we watched especially John's parents have a very, had a very large yard and they, you know, kept mowing until the, their late eighties and trying to keep everything up. And, and I thought putting as much of our land into native prairie is one way that we're going to get out of mowing. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Amen. And we're going to have a beautiful environment and enjoy the butterflies and the bees and hummingbirds and mm -hmm. pollinators. And yep. so we started, I think it's been about four years. This is the fourth mm. year now. We bought seed from Nicholas from Hoxie Seed and um, seeded about four acres. And so, you know, every year it's a discovery of something new is starting to grow and flower and and you know i bought some books to help learn to identify native yeah. plants and um it's it's um you know it's it's a wonderful discovery process because the prairie establishing a native prairie takes time and mm -hmm. different plants come up early and other plants you know we we didn't see anything for year two or year three and now in year four we're seeing some new things and yeah, uh, we really saw the prairie grasses come on last year in year three, so it's That's been fun. exciting. Yeah, yeah. The you know when I think of what you guys have done here, and you think of prairie as a historical thing in the Midwest. You know, it's sadly, and I, I could talk for hours with you guys because you have an eye for the landscape. What was it when you were growing up compared to now? And you know, have things gotten better? Have some things gotten worse? But that might be for another podcast. But one thing I think of with what you've done here is really in the spirit of those first people, first, you know, European settlers that would have been staring at the, uh, you know, west banks of the Mississippi River and and thinking of the possibilities for maximizing their, their chunk of, of ground, you know. Mm. And... That's really what you guys have done. You've you've seen it as well with 41 acres. We we can't be corn and bean farmers and 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 live on that. So we got to be creative. What can we yeah. what can we do? We don't want to mow, so let's bring in some prairie. <laughs> we 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 have some of these invasive species that we need to get rid of, and then we need to plant some of these natives in in place. We also need to have a crop, uh, you know, some kind of cash crop, so to speak, yeah. that we can make you know money off the ground and really when you think about it it's a modern version of pioneering and and settling yeah i think that's so cool you know that's something that almost gets lost from farming the creativity that farming should have just like those original original settlers had you know they they had to be so creative to make it work out you know far from all their families and back in the east coast and 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 you know there wasn't the general store right up the road to bail them out there they there was no guarantee on what they were growing was going to give them enough money to to you know get the other utensils that they could buy elsewhere and 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 so 
I think that what you guys are doing is is very cool in that sense. From from it's it's almost like we've circled back in history to yeah. And, and really, isn't that the way forward? Yeah, because when I when I was growing up, my dad and my uncle actually farmed some of this ground, and it was corn and soybeans. Now, mm-hmm. can you imagine having corn and soybeans out here in these sand hills? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so then, when we purchased it, uh, uh, we had it in the conservation reserve program. But we opted to actually plant hardwoods. Mm-hmm. So Nancy and I put in about 9,000 trees wow. back in the, I think, late 90s. Yeah, late 90s. Yeah, and we were viewed as crazy. I mean, oh, it was like yeah. no one put CRP into hardwoods because you can't farm it. Well, we had no intention of farming this in right. ground. Yeah. So that was kind of the start of, of this piece. And then, uh, so we always knew it wasn't going to, we weren't going to field crop it at all. Mm-hmm. It had to be something different. So we did that. We started the, the sawmill business and then the, you know, and selling tables and things. And then uh, Nancy came up with uh, another idea. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a farm girl. I, I grew up on a farm. I'm the sixth generation to own the family farm wow. in Illinois. That's um, we fantastic. Settled in 1840. Wow. I decided when I was 12 years old, in the early 70s that I wanted to farm. And sure. not many girls in the 70s ever said, I want to be a farmer. Right, but right. I told my dad, I want to be a farmer. And he said, if you want to be a farmer, you need to go, you need to study agribusiness and you need to get the, learn the business side. But um, my grandmother and my mother were great gardeners. And I always, I grew up with their flower gardening and mm-hmm. their, their um, love of flowers and I guess you know we spent 18 years living in apartments between the foreign service and the three years we were in Russia and Ukraine Mm -hmm. and and I didn't have a garden of any kind and Mm. I think that coming back after 15 years of being in the foreign service um, when I came out here it was like what am I gonna do and um, and my, you know, my inclination was to dig in the dirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and honestly, the dirt, the soils really have driven the decisions that, that I've made about the horticulture mm. production. Mm. So That's how it should be. Yes, yes. Deal. And um, when, when we lived in Washington, D.C., and our daughter actually lived in the area, one afternoon or one weekend, she said, oh, Mom, I got a Groupon for a Yupik Lavender Farm. And we went out on a Sunday afternoon to a Yupik Lavender Farm in Virginia that was just outside the D.C. metro area. And it was the most magical experience Mm. I had ever had. That's Uh, cool. You know, walking around a field of purple. Yeah. (laughs) Picking lavender. And um, I knew that lavender grew in tough soil that it doesn't like water it does not like wet feet it likes um, low productivity of Mm. soil and it will handle droughty soils and so it was um, a year ago january sitting in a middle of a middle of covid um, (laughs) (laughs) middle of a a cold iowa winter Mm. i started looking around to see how much lavender plants small lavender plants were i knew i couldn't afford buying ten dollar plants 
and I found some um, nurseries that sell plugs. Okay. So I ordered a bunch of lavender plugs, and they arrived. And then John and I, like a thousand, over a thousand lavender plugs. Wow. And you know, John and I were looking at each other like, "Well, now what do we do?" <laughs> <laughs> so we got out with the tape measure, and uh, we had uh, we have a field at the bottom of the hill mm-hmm. that's actually the best soil that we have okay and uh it actually has some silt in it (laughs) (laughs) not just and we measured out the rows and we got um a bulb auger um that's works on a on a drill and drilled holes a thousand of them and john helped me plant a thousand lavender plugs and then we had to go on a trip we came back and they were completely covered in weeds Mm. And I looked at it like, oh my gosh, I, this was almost, almost an acre of, of lavender Ooh. plants. Mm. And I thought, how am I ever going to get this weeded? Well, John grabbed a hoe, bless his heart. And he was out there and I was out there and we weeded for three or four days um, to wow. get, get the weeds down. And then I knew oh. that I was never going to keep up. So this was just last year 2021 i knew it was not going to keep up so i did some inquiries trying to find some part-time summer help Mm -hmm. and uh, like ffa students couldn't find anybody ran an ad in in, indeed.com and Mm -hmm. uh, found a young woman abby who now works for us full-time and the farm is called the lavender farm at sutliff because Mm. we're just a half a mile south of the old sutliff bridge on the cedar river uh, just south of Lisbon, northeast of Solon. And it's a little village that actually, um, John's got a lot of roots in Sutliff, and he'll tell you about. Mm, yeah. So it's the lavender farm at Sutliff. Love it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's, it's fun to see how it's come full circle like that, you know, yeah. from, and, and even incorporates some of those previous experiences you had outside of Iowa when you were, you know, in Washington, D.C., and time spent with your daughter, great memory, bring it back here. Yeah. And yeah. this ground is very unique. I've ne- I've never seen <laughs> soil like this in Iowa before. And I've been, I've been to, I think pretty much every corner of Iowa and uh, it's just, it's, it's a unique farm, but it's perfect for exactly what Nancy mentioned with yeah. growing the lavender. Well, we, we put up a couple new buildings here in the last four or five years and the concrete company uh where the or the uh, place that provide the concrete the owner came out and he was looking around at the soil and he says you know this would make a great sand plant <laughs> he goes for his concrete mix. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Oh, I don't know no. if I was, my feelings were hurt or what. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, I think, but he you. nailed it. He was right. very that, truthful, that, yeah. That, that was yeah. his version of a compliment, yeah, right? Was, yeah. <laughs> well, but actually, a lot of horticultural plants like well-drained mm. soils. Yeah. Mm. So what we lack is organic matter mm-hmm. in our soil. And... Unfortunately, we haven't had time yet to get our soil sampling done to really know where we're at. Sure. But we do know that the corn suitability ratings of these soils are up here on the hill. It's 17. Wow. One, seven. Wow. Uh, at the bottom of the hill, it's like, I don't know, 143, 126, something You might like want to do something about that. I don't know. <laughs> Just a suggestion. <laughs> so, so that's why one of, one of our um, priorities is compost yeah. and uh, getting, getting, working on compost. We've just got a 
worm composting bin, and we're going to get started with love worm it. composting. Oh, love and it. If we, you guys are watching on YouTube, I'm posting a picture right now because this compost <laughs> mountain is so big. It yeah, it's so a great, it's a great that's start. That's manure. Yeah. Wood chips that we have plenty of. Mine fits in like a large, just like a bucket at home, and theirs is just a house of compost. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, this, the, but I, I, I do think the lavender thought comes from a, we were in Crimea probably 20 some years ago and yeah we happened to be and it's fairly rough soil there mm. dry climate and we came across to probably a 600 acre lavender field wow and it wow. just made such an impression on me you could just smell the lavender scent mm. and, and yeah. I think that scent just kind of stuck in Nancy's head for all yeah. those years yeah. and well, there's a lot of yeah. association you know between yeah. scent, you know smell mm. and memory yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. My favorite flower that we grow out at uh, Hoxie is Rattlesnake Master. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a beautiful flower, but it's the smell that, that huh, really, yeah. you know, you, when it's in the room, you just know there's Rattlesnake Master in yeah. here somewhere. It's huh. almost minty, but huh. uh, yeah, yeah it, it's strong. It's pervasive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what, so we know you have an event coming up this weekend. That's a little taste of the future. Overall, what is what is your your hope long term for for the farm here? What what other big projects would you like to tackle uh, in the next several years? Uh, well, actually, I think we we bit off a big slice. Oh right now. yes, <laughs> <laughs> I want to focus on perennials. So we are planting hundreds mm. of perennials this year. Um, and Abby's been doing a lot of the planting because um, I, I really like the labor savings that comes comes with perennials. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is once we get the the plants or the shrubs in the ground, then um, we don't have to worry about the the planting in the springtime. Right. And I I'm our farm has been no-till for 30 years in mm-hmm. Illinois, wow. and I'm I'm a big no-till person. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that we're developing the UPIC lavender, and we're going to be developing um, products from lavender. So I hope awesome. to buy a still, and we'll distill lavender to make essential oil and lavender water, and like That's lavender awesome. candles and, and things like that, um, sachets and, and that type of thing. Um, one really of the cool. big areas next is going to be working on agroforestry. We have a lot of timber. We've got about 25 acres of timber. Mm. We've cleaned up a, a really nice portion of it, and that has deer fencing around it. So I had planted hazelnuts and uh, a few years ago when we planted about 700 trees together. The deer ate all of them the first uh, winter. Uh, they left the hardwoods, the trees, uh, like the oaks and the hickories and things like yeah. that, thankfully. but they completely mowed the, the hazelnuts. Yeah. And um, I'm starting to study hazelnuts, but they are, from what I understand, they're an understory crop. So that's one potential. Yeah, that's um, Mushroom production is, is another one. We yeah. talked a little bit about that this morning. And we're also starting a shade garden of perennials that grow in shade. So mm. we're starting um, wild ginger and a still bee and next year I want to get like bleeding heart and some other beautiful flowers that are definitely shade loving. 
plants. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to look into ginseng. And oh, yeah. um, we found a, um, a grape uh, that is winter hardy and is a shade tolerant plant. I Sorry, I can't think of the name of it right now, but we also have a, a fair number of berries. And yes, yeah, we, we got to taste we, some of those today. Yes, yes, and I, I wanted to get some unusual berries. I knew mm -hmm. you maybe did just we'd that. Never, yes. we would never compete with uh, going head-to-head -head with somebody who's established in raspberry and blueberry production, yeah, right. but I've chosen service berries, which are June berries, honey berries, elderberries, uh, currants, I love mm -hmm. currants, and gooseberries, and um, goji, uh, goji yep. berry, yep, yep, yep. Yes. gojis, and uh, hardy fig. So, yep. and we've started wild plums. So why why the berries? What what's the why is there a pole with berries? You kind of talked about the lavender, but um, everybody loves berries, and That's I love true. berries, and I love to make pies. That's ah. one of the things I work. Work on They're one of the most versatile fruits, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. When you have when you have apples, yeah. there's only so much you can do. Apple slices, you make <laughs> applesauce, maybe make an apple pie. Yeah. But after that, you can't really cut up apples. About as versatile. Throw them on your cereal. Nancy, but berries, the berries. Yeah. Yep. Berries are berries are just they're they're the perfect but also, fruit. But I also think beyond these projects that you know we're working on is uh, some kind of succession. You know, we're really looking because mm. eventually we are going to retire. Completely at some point. <laughs> Sometime. <laughs> Remember, and, we're going to be around. We're rooting for you, John. Yeah, we we believe right. in you. <laughs> so we're looking for. You know, we're, we'd like to foster some. You know, younger talent to come in that maybe can't. You know, afford to get into farming now. You know, this is not a typical farm. So I mean, it's it's uh, something they can contribute labor to. And yeah. I think we've got the ground and and some of the capital expense, but. You know, eventually we'd like to bring a younger generation in to, mm. to kind of keep this enterprise going. Yeah. That's really cool. Have yeah. a legacy, yeah. not just in name, but mm -hmm. also in product, in yeah. service, in yeah. in yeah. Uh, land, and in uh, um, in reputation. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's really cool. I mean, Dad's in that place too, right? He's 66, and he's looking at, okay, what's the next step mm -hmm. where I'm not doing all of this work yeah. and you know, I didn't just spend all of these like thousands of hours and decades mm -hmm. of my life, you know, producing something that ends with me and, and carry on. And yeah, and I think that is super cool. I, I think particularly something that you guys have done really well, Kent was talking about the creativity and creativity. I think it means something differently now, different now than it used to. It, uh, uh, right now, it means that someone likes to paint or draw or make furniture or do something artsy. Uh, but 300 years ago, uh, creativity meant you got to live a little longer because you were able to yeah, figure out how to grow. Ingenuity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's the kind of creativity you all have stepped into. And, and with creativity comes messiness. Doesn't matter what kind of creativity. My wife flips furniture. She's very creative. Mm -hmm. She's incredible at it. Uh, but there is mess with that. There's furniture all around the house. You know, there's paint uh, in places. We've got a room that's just designated for that messiness. But, uh, I mean, when we were touring the farm, you were talking about keeping critters out of your... I mean, most <laughs> farmers aren't worried about that. In fact, I mean, 200 years ago, that was really normal. 100 years ago, that was a very normal thought. We uh -huh. needed to keep the animals from eating our food that yeah. we're growing for us. Well, today, that's, 
that's not a thought at all for most farming. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's such a large scale, at least in row crop, it's such a large scale. Yeah. You're not even worried that's true. about, that's a good point about, so with the creativity that you're doing, you actually have, you have mess in terms of, of critters coming to try and, uh, eat your food and you guys have very creative fences and, and all sorts of things, but it's not in a box. Nothing you guys are doing is in a box mm-hmm. and you're having to figure out as you go. And, and not only does it take brains, but I think more than that, it takes going after it and just deciding you're going to get it done no matter what it takes. And, and I've seen kind of what you guys have done with that. And it is incredible. <laughs> well, I have you. loved seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're, uh, that's very well said, Nicholas. I, I mean, I think it, it, it sums it up well. And, and I really do want to applaud you for your vision for the future by having a new generation of, of farmers come in. You know, there's, there's a, to kind of paint the picture of what farming is like now, my wife and I, we just moved our family to our family farm uh, on my mother's side. And uh, my grandfather, he farmed it after his dad farmed it. And his grandfather bought it for his dad. They were the neighboring farm down the road. And, uh, you know, that was just what you did. And and my grandpa's brother, he went and farmed the other grandparents' farm when he left the house. And, and today on that road, which you look in every direction, we're surrounded by cropland right we're surrounded by farmland there's not a single not one farmer on my road until you get about maybe three miles down the road and everything is 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 tied up by some you know large farm operation that's cash renting the ground not that there's anything wrong with that but the idea here is Who's connected to that ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, who is making the, the call on how that ground is treated, the critters that live there, the, the air quality, the water quality, right? And if we don't start getting people, another generation brought in, as John said, putting that, that really that sweat equity into it, the, the labor that they did themselves, the, mm-hmm. something that they can look back on when they're, at that retirement age and thinking about who the next person is that they're, we're not going to, we're going to lose all that care altogether, you know? Yeah. So, and then, and then once you have large commercial farms, crop farms, typically you, you start to lose that community. I mean, yep. it, yeah. Yeah. yes, you, uh, you know, there's just not enough people there for sustainability. Yeah. Yep. They're not yeah. your neighbor anymore. They're your competitor your for land. Well, yeah. you can remember sad. years ago, you always had like uh, the, the elevator in town. I mean, yeah. that was the hub yeah. and things. And, mm-hmm. and now it's a private farm that owns the elevator. Typically, the, the yeah. co-ops moved out to a larger facility. And yep. all these small-town elevators are typically just owned by one farmer yeah. anymore. And so you lose all that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I grew up in a town of 650. Mm-hmm. It's down to 600 now. It's Grand Ridge, Illinois. Mm. And we had kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, and had to go 10 miles away to high school. And the school has shrunk by half from the size it was when, yeah. when I was in school. And, but the community has still stayed fairly vibrant because people in the community realize it's a great place to raise children. Yeah. And it's a great place for families. And that's where I think that the horticulture operations and the, the specialty crops that are um, different from corn and soybeans yep. that um, maybe it's organic production too yeah. um, that 
that bring more people to the land and mm -hmm. bring yeah. people back to small-scale holdings yep. where they can be a part of smaller communities and be a part of our rural school systems that I, uh, you know, I'm really excited to be working with horticulture crops finally in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up, but I did, we did have, we had corn, soybeans, wheat, and alfalfa. So we had a fairly diverse operation with no livestock at that when I was growing up. But, um, but there's just, to me, there's a lot of value. Um, people can get a foothold into farming with non-traditional crops like yes. horticulture crops or there's some exciting things that we've talked about today about oh, yeah. raising native prairie grasses and forbs and flowers yep. Yep. for seed production because fortunately there's been a lot of investment mm -hmm. uh, of people's time and usda funds um, to go into conservation areas yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm excited to be looking looking at possibilities of raising seed for perhaps Hoxie to buy some seed off of us from the native grasses and oh, uh, flowers it. that we've got started and yes. potential for a little bit more down the road. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. We, we, there's just, there's, in, in my opinion, there's not enough prairie and wildflower seeds you know to go around to as much and i remember for a while thinking oh, man our industry is propped up by government spending i don't like that at all and my dad sat me down and he explained no it's propped up by people wanting clean air and clean water right, right? and so that the way that the 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 way that the public is paying for it is through the government through their taxes yeah. but it's because we have this this need this basic human need you know that uh Food and food and waters, you know, two of the three mm -hmm. or two of yeah. the four, and uh, and I think, yeah, it, it's so important the the native aspect of it. But there are many others. I I believe lavender is not native to Iowa, is it? No, it's native of the Mediterranean. Yeah. So Greece, Turkey, some of the dry, arid areas of southern yes. Europe is where lavender. And I was, thinking, I was thinking it was overseas, but so something mm -hmm. like that, where it's not necessarily native, but it's, you can do smaller production yeah. and, and live off the land and live very connected to the land. Because yes. similarly, when the president of a huge company isn't connected to the people at the bottom, yeah. often isn't treating them well, well, people who own land but aren't connected to their land often have a hard time well, treating it as and, well. And it's diverse, right? So, I, you know, I, as a as somebody who would call themselves a conservationist myself, anytime you can promote natives, fantastic. However, even if we turned this entire state back into 80% prairie like it was at one point, where are the bison? Where are the elk? Where are the black bears? Where are the mountain lions? Where are the wolves? You don't have, where are all the species that have gone extinct? Mm. You don't, you can't ever have 100% what you once did, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the argument for the, for the uh, pheasant, right? When we went up and talked with uh, Bob and, and Howard from uh, Pheasants Forever, a lot of times that's a criticism. Why are you promoting something that's not a native? Well, the native birds that were here, we don't have them anymore. And they fit, and it's diverse. They're filling a, a, a new modified niche on this modified landscape, and anytime yeah. you can bring in more diversity, instead of just a monoculture uh, that we see in almost every direction, it's a win because 
yes, it's awesome to have that perfect preserve. It's kind of like restoring an old car, right? Have that numbers matching 1970 Chevelle LS6, 454 <laughs> big block, you know, SS trim. But if you can't find the matching uh, motor and tranny to go with the frame and the, the body, you know, uh, a uh, crate engine will do, right? It's still a cool car. And it's kind of that way when you look at, at our landscape now. If you can't have uh, uh, the exact thing, well, let's make it as good as we can, and that's bringing diversity in. And that can mean having non-native species on the landscape that people are raising for a crop instead. Because when we were walking down there in that lavender, I mean, I took a video of it. There were butterflies or bees or all these pollinators that are saying, hey, you know what? We don't have our prayer anymore. Hey, look, there's some lavender. Yeah. We have that. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, it's solving another problem yeah. just by having that diversity. I think it's important to note that we're not looking for a road back to what was. We're looking mm-hmm. for a road forward. Right. Not so, to the to end it. of a cliff where we fall yeah. off yes. of it, you know. So very well what, what what path brings us forward and continues to bring us forward and yeah. and uh, but we are we are nearing the end of our time, but before we go, there are gonna be lots of people I'm sure that are gonna have questions. I mean, you guys are so filled with knowledge and, and interesting <laughs> things yes. that People, I, I guarantee you people are going to have questions. How can people reach out to you? How can they get connected with your farm? I mean, you even mentioned having more people work on the farm and, and passing along. If someone was interested in seeing what you had or maybe coming to a pick day, how would they reach out to you guys? We have uh, the Lavender Farm at Sutliff on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And it is very good. I yes. follow them. So it's, it's just all, all one word, the Lavender Farm at Sutliff. And... Then I'm working on our website for the Lavender Farm. Yes. And I'm, I'm getting close. You're getting <laughs> close. That's a lot of work. And we, we're hoping to open this Sunday or next Wednesday for You Pick Lavender. Okay. And we'll be announcing on Instagram and Facebook. I'm what all, date is that, just in case we don't, in case, for whenever this is posted? So the, the dates would be? Um, 26th and... Oh, thank you, John. 26th and 29th of June. June 26th and 29th. 29th. We're going to try to be open on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays for Mm. you pick lavender. As the berries come on, I want to make jam and jellies. And and then we have a slot at the Iowa City Farmer's Market as we um, start to come up with some products to sell. Hope to have some more cut flowers later in the summer. I am working on the website for the Stonehouse Timber Sawmill and Kiln. It's not up and running yet, so okay. the best, you know. Um, yeah, I what's think the, what's best the best way, way for get... someone to order a table? <laughs> <laughs> best way, I think, is to get in touch with us through the Instagram, Facebook, sure. or the Lavender Farm website. Yeah. And I'll pass the info to John, and when I can get the Lavender Farm website up and running, then I can return to finishing the sawmill website. Hmm. And wow. um, yeah, people have um, most of the tree removal services in eastern Iowa are aware of us, and furniture awesome. makers in the area are aware of us to, to find out um, about our service, the work we do with yeah. the mill and the kiln, and, and then selling slabs and providing those services of milling, sawmilling, and kilning wood sure. for people. Yeah, the, the derecho brought us probably two years worth of work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cedar Rapids, yeah. Yep. Amazing. You got a pile of trees sitting yeah. out in, <laughs> yeah. in a big compost pile yeah. that, that yeah. benefited from that, too. 
No, well, we we thank you so much, Nancy thank and you. John, for sharing your place and yeah. This was really fun. Thank you for interviewing yeah. us. Oh, very, had inspirational. A good time. Yeah. very inspirational. Very inspirational. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much to you guys for listening in. This has been the Prairie Farm. We are presented by Hoxie Native Seeds, and do not forget. Just as you you have seen today, conservation happens one yard at a time. See you next time.